and I hope you're all doing well this morning. I hope you're all warm this morning. If you're not, you should come up here. It is very warm, two feet off the floor, but it is, it is good to have you here this morning. We want you to be comfortable and able to, uh, to enjoy hearing God's Word and worship according to His Word this morning. If you would, I would like to ask you to pray with me and for me this morning as we begin uh, to get back on track in First Peter this morning together as a church body. If you would, bow your head with me. Our Father and our God, we come to you today because we can, because you came to us through the person and work of Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Mediator, our Redeemer, the one who guides us and guards us. Lord, you, you have guided us and guarded us most appropriately by giving us your word to be the standard by which we live and, and we walk and we grow in sanctification in order that we would reflect the work of your son in our behavior, in our response to government, in our response to one another in love. Father, we, we pray that we would apply the truth we hear today to our hearts. That, no, Lord, I, I pray that you would apply the truth we hear today to our hearts because we, in and of ourselves, would be insufficient to do that. But your Holy Spirit is more than capable. It is your will that we apply the truth in these scriptures to our hearts and our lives today. And I ask you to do that, Lord. So not just that we would be edified, not just that we would be benefited, but primarily because... We need this to happen so that you would be magnified, you would be glorified, and you would be praised not only in the church, but through the church and through our obedience to government, through our obedience as citizens of a, another kingdom, as we live here as temporary citizens in this kingdom. We ask that you would do this today in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, obviously, as you can tell, even as I prayed, we are heading back to First Peter this morning. We're going to be getting back on track and going back to 1 Peter and continue our study, which if you went onto the internet and looked at it, it's basically titled, A Study in Salvation, God's Sovereignty, and Suffering, and all those fit together in the Christian's life. Salvation, God's Sovereignty, and Suffering. And if you'll turn with me to 1 Peter 2, we'll begin there, and we're going to do just a little bit of review, a little bit of backup and read to get to the text we're going to cover this morning. And just turn with me to chapter 2, verse 9, as we begin this morning. And, and aren't you just amazed, first and foremost, that you are here this morning able to and desirous to hear God instruct you in how to live as a Christian? You're his child. You have been appointed to salvation by his grace. And in that salvation experience, he has also guided you in how you should live. And he's given us the directions we need in scriptures to understand our place in this world. That's what we see as we read chapter 2, verse 9. I'm going to read down to verse 20. Today we will primarily look at verse 13, 14, and 15, Lord willing. Begin in verse 9, speaking to the Christians that are scattered throughout all these regions that Peter is addressing. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. That's key, by the way, to the rest of the text. You're God's possession. So that... You may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you were not a people. You were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lust, which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. So that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Verse 13, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God, that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men. Do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as slaves of God. 
Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor. If for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly, for what credit is there if, when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if, when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. This finds favor with God. In verses 9 through 20, Peter's basically telling us that Christians are actually subjects to one sovereign king, one sovereign king, while we live in two kingdoms. There's a dualism going on here in the Christian life. We're citizens of two kingdoms, citizens of earth and citizens of heaven. In verses 9 through 10, Peter tells us that we are a chosen race. He's, he's, he's delegating us in a special rank. We have a, we have a higher rank than, than the non-believer in this world. We are a chosen, picked out, elect group of people, a royal priesthood. We have a royal function, a, a function that would serve God in His kingdom. We are a set-apart nation. We are a holy nation of people and a people for God's own possession. We belong to God. You are God's people. And, and he basically says in verses 9 through 10 that God's done all this wonderful thing and then he's left us here. Wait a minute. He's picked us out. He's made us servants. He's set us apart. We're his possession. And he left us here in this temporal kingdom. But he did so for a divine purpose. He did so so that we would do what it says in verse 10, that we would proclaim the excellencies of our king who has bought us and brought us out of the kingdom of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of his marvelous light. And the way we, we, we proclaim these excellencies is not only with our mouth, but with our behavior in this world. In verses 11 through 12, Peter tells us that we are, we are to respond like a people who have been rescued by God. If we have been rescued by God, we'll respond to His mercy by, by doing what? What's it say in verses 11 and 12? By pursuing holiness, pursuing obedience. When we are among unbelievers, the Gentiles, he's referring to. And we do that again so that they will see the glory of Jesus in our lives and the power of transforming grace that sets us apart as aliens in this world. How will they know that we belong to another kingdom? unless they see that we live like kingdom citizens while here on earth. That actually sets us above the standards that are on the earth. We actually have higher standards than the people on the earth. We actually obey the rules of this earth for different reasons too, by the way. We're motivated to be responsible to the law of the land for different reasons than the world. The world simply doesn't want to get caught breaking the law. We as Christians, we want to observe the law because it honors God who set the law, the authority over us for a divine purpose, to restrain evil and to reward those who do right. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to pick up where Peter left off. We're going to pick, off, pick up where he left off teaching us uh, last couple of lessons and talk about how what God requires of us as alien citizens. What does God require of us as alien citizens living in two kingdoms under one king? Well, the Scottish reformer John Knox had something to say about that. And I found that this is very interesting. He commented on this dual citizenship that we have. John Knox said this, Ever since Christianity was first preached, the Christian citizen has been a puzzle both to himself and to his rulers. By the elementary necessities of his creed, he has been a man living in two worlds. In one, he has been a member of a national community and the other a community taken out of the nations. In one, he has been bound to obey and enforce the laws of his state. In the other, to measure his conduct by standards not recognized by those laws and often inconsistent with them. This dualism has been made tolerable only by the prospect of a reconciliation. That prospect is, again, an elementary necessity of the Christian creed. Somehow, somewhere, the conflict of loyalties will end. The kingdom of this world will pass. The kingdom of God will be established. Close the quote. But what Peter's going to tell us today is until that day happens, we are to be good citizens of this kingdom because we are already kingdoms and we are citizens of kingdom of heaven. Now, he tells us how to, how to be good citizens while we're here on earth. And I'm going to give you four points, only going to cover two maybe today. 
okay? I'm going to give you four. This will cover the next few lessons here. But number one, to be a good citizen, we are to, number one, submit to the will of God confidently here on earth. Submit to the will of God confidently. Number two, we are to silence the foolishness of men powerfully. Submit to the will of God confidently. Silence the foolishness of men powerfully here on earth. Number three, we are to serve all men freely here on earth. Number four, we are to suffer for God graciously here on earth. So, as a good citizen on earth, we are to submit. We are to submit to the will of God. We are to silence foolish men, serve all men, and suffer for God graciously. That's what we're called to do. If you look at 1 Peter 2, 13, Peter begins by telling us that our first responsibility as alien citizens is to, number one, submit, submit to the sovereign will of God confidently. It means trusting in God has a good plan. God has a good reason for what he's about to say here. Though sometimes suffering Christians under persecution and corrupt governments cannot see the will of God being really that good for them at the moment. But they have to have confidence that they are the ones that God has scattered and planted in those places. When you read chapter 1, verse 1, it talks about how we, are, have, we have been planted. We've been scattered by God in the regions we live in, under the governments we live under. So we have to take confidence in that. He didn't abandon us when he put us under someone like Nero or put us in a corrupt government that endorses things that are sinful, as in our country at times. But verse 13 says, Submit, which is a huge word that all of us have a natural reaction to, which is no. No. So what he's telling us to do is something supernatural here. Trusting in God, that's supernatural. But submission is like an American tradition, lack of submission is an American tradition, right? I mean, rebellion would be what we would mark our, our lives by, our country by many times. But that's not what he says to do. Even if it's a corrupt government, he doesn't say to rebel. He says, submit. Submit yourselves to the, for the Lord's sake to every, that's just hard to take, every human institution. Well, verse 13, what Peter's declaring is that Christians are to be a model citizen. In whatever country, whatever rulership they are under, it doesn't matter if it's a dictatorship, it doesn't matter if it's a republic, okay, or a, democ- or dem- a democracy, it's, it doesn't matter. Submit, he says, to human governments because we realize that all governments are ordained sovereignly by God. God allows them. God creates them. God initiates them for a purpose. Bad government is better than no government, by the way. There's a way that seems right to a man. They didn't want a king in Israel. There was a way that seemed right to the man. They didn't want God to be their king, but the end thereof would be death. That's what happens without government. God has established human government for a reason. And what we we take confidence is knowing that, that God is the one who actually removes kings and God is the one who actually establishes kings. That's my confidence. When I see every four years really bad changes in our country, I, I go, Daniel 2, that's what I go. I go, Daniel 2 is my confidence. Go, go there, go Daniel 2.20, Daniel 2.20. This is my confidence. I know that God's sovereignly working even through the corruption that we see in the governments of men. Because face it, look, we live in a world that's fallen. And so when you add many fallen leaders together, you end up with many bad ideas. But again, those ideas, many times, if, if, they, if you look them over, they are meant to keep us protected by God. God works even through their bad choices, many times, to actually cause us to pray more faithfully as Christians, be more active in our voting, be more active as citizens in this country to see change happen biblically. In, Acts, or in Daniel 2.20, this is what my comfort is. I know that God removes kings and God establishes kings on the earth for his divine purposes. Here in, in 2.20, Daniel said, Let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. It is he who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. It's God who is in charge. That's my confidence. That's why I can submit Because I know that when I submit that God has put that person over me for a divine reason, and even if they abuse me in their authority, God will seek his own vengeance. I don't have to. This is why I think Peter tells us the command in 2.13 to have confidence in in God's rule. 
in God's care. He put us here. And he wants us to know that God is providing for you, even in the midst of persecution, that the saints there in 1 Peter were enduring. And we need to hear this, and, and they needed to hear this message. Listen, we all know that we live in an upside-down world, don't we? Right now, if you turned on the TV, everything that we call evil is being called good, right? We live in that. And that world is led by madmen and sinners. We know that. But here's, here's the thing, what we have also have confidence in when we understand the sovereignty of God. Not one of those madmen, not one of those decisions are outside of God's sovereignty. Not one act of tyranny or sin will go unaccounted for either. So we can trust God when we submit to our government, to human institutions. God will reap His own vengeance on those who abuse His delegated authority. Just take confidence in that. Herod experienced that when he didn't submit to God and give God the glory he should have gave. And he, he was eaten by worms. Peter wants us to know that we are commanded as Christian citizens, alien citizens, to do what it says in verse 13 there, to submit ourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Let me go on and read verse 14 too. Whether to, or verse 13b, whether to a king as one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. Now, what I want you to see here in this 13 and 14, there's a, there's a natural progression that, that Peter puts in this. Notice he says in verse 13, whether any human institution, any human creation that God has allowed, whether it's a king as one in authority or governors. And basically what he's saying is, he goes from king to governor, it'd be like us saying from president to policeman. Submit to the, pre from, to the president or to the policeman who pulls you over for driving 40 in a 30 zone. Okay? And don't complain. You deserve the, the ticket. All right? You broke the law. But what he's saying is, every human institution and authority is included in this submitting. And, and again... If you really look at this passage properly, you'll notice that the command is not just to submit to men. The command is submit and trust in the Lord who orders all men, who establishes government for a reason. And the word submit is an interesting word in the Bible. It means a little bit different than what we think of probably in our own English vocabulary. But submit means basically to place under in an orderly fashion. To place under in an orderly fashion. It's actually a military term that was used in the scriptures to talk about getting in rank. And, and listen, if you're going to have an effective military, what do you have to have? You have to have leaders. You have to have those who follow. And they have to be you know, willfully submitted to their leaders or you're going to have chaos. The biblical use of the term is interesting, though, because when you, you look at the primary uses of this term submit in the New Testament, it's, it's primarily dealing with submitting or yielding voluntarily to another for their good. I'll give you an example in, in 1 Peter 3.1, actually. 1 Peter 3.1, just across your page, probably. Here's an example of submitting willfully for the good of another. Look what it says in 3.1. In the same way, you wives. In the same way as what? Well, actually, what he's talking about today in chapter 2. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they will be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. That's a willful submission by a wife for the sake of her husband's salvation. That's what that is. It's a willful submission that she's exerting there. That's the kind of submission that we're talking about here in 1 Peter 2. And why this is important is this. As regenerated people, as Christian people who belong to the kingdom of God, we, we submit to the kingdom of this world, to the authorities in this world, because we know that God's sovereign over both. And we have a different motive for, for putting us under their authority. It's to bring Him glory, and it's actually to help others in our, in our kingdom that we live in, in this world. And this kind of submission, though, only can happen when someone is regenerate. Willful submission doesn't happen in the rebellious heart, the hardened heart. It only happens in the heart that's been regenerated and born again by God. When God takes away our rebellious, sin-enslaved hearts, He replaces it with a willing heart that's set free to serve Jesus and enslaved to His work and for His glory. And so Peter's basically applying how our behavior needs to be shaped by our submission to Christ. Our submission to Christ enables us to submit to His Lordship. And our, 
our submitting to his lordship means we submit to the fact that he's lord over our life and our authorities on earth. And we can trust that if he's meted out these authorities for us, they will be good for us. We can, we can follow them and we can trust in God's sovereignty to protect us. He set them over us temporarily. And I want you to understand something about this. Submitting to human institutions, submitting to government, for the Christian is different than the unbeliever because here's what it is. When we ultimately submit to the authority that is over us, we're submitting to God who put them over us. So our submission and our obedience is actually an act of worship. The unbeliever is not worshiping God when they grudgingly drive the speed limit. When we willfully obey the laws of the land, we are worshiping God. Isn't that great to know? And I didn't, I didn't break God's command coming over here, and I willfully submitted because I, I was very convicted after studying this text. This is a, this is a self-inflicting sermon for me. This is hard. Because I, I see certain laws, and I think that's foolish. I do. And, and this convicted me that, you know what, though they may be foolish in my own mind, but I know that God has established these leaders, these authorities, for my good and His glory. I can submit to these, and it can become an act of worship and thanksgiving because they actually protect me. They actually protect me. Speed limit laws protect you and others. Peter tells us why we should do this. It gives, it's really straightforward. Isn't it easy to understand the text, verse 13? Submit yourselves. Notice it's you having to be responsible here. You submit yourselves. But why? Well, for or because... For the Lord's sake. Do it for the Lord's sake. Our willful submission, and it has to be willful if it's going to be worshipful, our willful submission displays that we know that we belong to a heavenly kingdom. We're heavenly citizens, and we love our Savior who, who has put these authorities over us, and we trust His rulership in, his, in our lives. And we trust that He's governing, it, governing us through government, and that we can trust in His guidance, knowing that He is going to care for us. We do it for His sake. When you do this, you're thanking Him. You're saying, God, I know you're good. I don't understand all these human rules, all these human governments and agencies and institutions, but I know that you have established these for a divine purpose. I'm going to submit to you in doing this without complaining. That's hard. That's hard. I don't want you to raise your hand when I ask you this, but has anybody ever complained about our government? I'm not going to look. All right? That's sin, by the way. Complaining is different than trying to do something about it, by the way. But complaining is actually, complaining is an act of saying that I'm not satisfied with God's sovereignty. I am not happy with his rule over me, placing me in this country. He's given us alternatives to complaining. And, and that would be really easy to do. Complaining would be very easy to do if you were in Peter's church's condition. They're being persecuted under Nero. We have nothing to complain about. Christians were being lit on fire as torches for his entertainment. Yet he's writing this letter saying, submit to them. We need this divine reminder, especially when things are in upheaval. And we remember that God created all that is for our good and for his glory. Even human institutions, they were created, listen, they were created either directly by God or indirectly by God. But everything is directly somehow related back to God. That means that all governments and all men are accountable to him as well. That's comforting. Because when Nero did what he did, he didn't get away with it. He faced God one day. The very God he hated and despised and actually blasphemed by claiming that he was God. He faced him. And he received his righteous wrath that he deserved. And we see, we see God does do that. God, God does promise if... Those that he delegates, those that he, he calls to be his ambassadors and his, his instruments, that's what, or servants, that's what rulers are called in Scripture, whether they're evil or whether they're good. They're called servants of God. If they, if they abuse that power, God will seek vengeance. God will bring retribution to them. Go back again to Daniel 4. We see this happen in the life of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was accountable to God to be a faithful leader over that country. A faithful leader and how he dealt with those who were enslaved in that country. Yet he actually esteemed himself as greater than God, and God rebuked him for that. Daniel 4.24. Daniel 4.24. This is Daniel speaking. He says, this is the interpretation. O God, this is the decree of the Most High. It's interesting. He starts out with saying, a king... <laughs> 
You're not the Most High. Here's what the Most High says to you, Nebuchadnezzar. The Most High says, which, was, which has come uh, upon my Lord the King, uh, that you may be driven from, away from mankind, and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field, and you will be given grass to eat like cattle, and be drenched with the dew of heaven. And seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. Now, look further down to verse 31. While the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, sovereignty has been removed from you. You will be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You will be given, given grass to eat like cattle, and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler, is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever He wishes. Immediately, the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle, and his body was drenched like the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird claws. But at the end of that period, he, re he repents. I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever, for His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom endures from generation to generation. I, I say that just to encourage you that when, when there are even evil leaders and rulers over us, God will deal with them. And one day they will make that same de declaration as Nebuchadnezzar. I lifted my eyes and my reason came back to me and I said, you are the most high. You are the one who is in control. But, and that, that's confidence building in me. Because again, I'm not told I can rebel against every bad leader that I like. I'm told to submit to them. So I have to look at this biblically. Biblically, what I'm being told is I'm responsible to submit to these leaders. And biblically, I also know that they're responsible to do whatever they do for my good and for God's glory. And when they don't, God will seek retribution on them. I take confidence in that. One day, God's vengeance may look like it's sleeping, but one day it will be awakened against those who abuse this delegated authority that He's given to them. So I don't have to seek vengeance on my government. I can submit willfully, knowing that if they make bad choices, they will be held accountable for those choices eventually and maybe even eternally. Go back to 1 Peter 2.14. In 2.14, Peter tells us why God, why God ordained human institutions. Why did God ordain human government? Why does the military exist? Why do we have a president? Why do we have a Congress? Why do we have a Senate? Why do we have what we have in the United States? And then at the same time, why, why do dictators reign? Why, do the, why are they allowed to live? Well, listen, whether we, uh, we totally disagree with dictators because they're sinful. There's no such thing except for Christ as a benevolent dictator. He's the only one who's benevolent, loving and perfect and righteous and rules. But every other dictator is sinful, is a, 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 you know, egomaniac, loves himself and wants all power for himself. But even in those corrupt systems, there is a safety net for people. They are being protected. There are laws, whether it's self-motivated laws, like most dictators for their own good, there's still laws that will eventually protect the people. But that's what Peter tells us. That's why God even ordained it. Now, again, those people are accountable for abusing those laws for their own gain and hurting the people. One day, God will bring justice down on those, like we see even that happened in, uh, with Saddam Hussein's case. But he says in verse 14 that human institutions exist for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. So governments are ordained by God to punish offenders and praise those who keep the law. Okay, that's what they're called to do. Now, obviously, Peter and Paul kept the law. They did what was right. They did good. They did not receive praise from Nero. That doesn't mean they shouldn't have kept the law. What that simply means is Nero was accountable for doing just the opposite of what God ordained him to do. In his rebellion, God would punish him for that. Paul taught the same exact doctrine as Peter here. We need to reference that in Romans 13. Now, Romans 13. Now, I, how, I realize as I'm teaching this to you as a church, unless you're the exception to the rule as American citizens, this is hard to digest. It's hard for me to digest at times. Certain times more than others. 
But I know this, this is God's revealed will. And there's also some exceptions we'll come to in a little bit, okay? But right now, we need to understand this is His will so that He is glorified through our behavior and that other people benefit as well, okay? For our good behavior, for our submission. Just think about it this way. When you obey the law and you don't speed or you don't drink and drive or et cetera, et cetera, you're protecting those people who drive beside you. And if you're doing it for the reason that you're honoring God, it's actually an act of worship as you do that too. So that's encouraging. But in Romans 13, Paul says the same thing as Peter. In Romans 13, 1, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. Notice, every person. Christians aren't exempt. Really, really righteous Christians aren't exempt. Really, really self-righteous right-wing conservatives aren't exempt. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. See how he states that? The reason is because that authority exists because of God. And those which exist are established by God. And that encompasses, again, every type of government. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. Whoa, wait a minute. Whoa, that's another step further down the road I didn't want to go. When you resist these governmental authorities, who are you resisting? You're resisting God, the ordinance of God. You're opposing God. And they've opposed... And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. Listen, and that's true. If you, if you oppose God and you break these laws, you're going to receive condemnation. We're going to receive probably a fine, imprisonment, or possibly death. For rulers are not the cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear? Do you want to have no fear of authority? <laughs> Simply do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is the minister, notice that, it's the minister of God. Human government is a minister of God. Again, if they abuse it, they're accountable, all right? Right now, we're simply telling, he's telling us, we are to recognize all authorities as from God and for our good. It's for your good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. If you break the law, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on all on the one who practices evil. This is why we believe in in capital punishment. Because government can do that. A vigilante cannot. You have no right as an individual citizen to exercise capital punishment when someone offends you. But that right has been given to civil government for a purpose, so that God would be glorified because the evil would be kept in check. And if that was practiced more often when they decree that, then there would be less evil facing our world every day. But because our country, again, does not do this swiftly, they have actually diverted themselves from God's will. And evil is inclining, right? It's increasing in our country. Verse 5 says, Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection or submission, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, get this, this is the hard part, because of this you also pay taxes, For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render all to all what is due them. Tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, and honor to whom honor. We pay taxes to a country that sometimes uses our taxes corruptly. We're submitted to God in doing that. They're accountable. Sometimes people go to churches and they submit to men that are preachers and pastors, and they do so biblically, and those pastors fleece them like sheep for slaughter. Okay? Pastor's accountable. The person did what they were called to do in submitting biblically, yet there's going to be a recompense that comes to those who abuse that delegated authority. Again, this is what we see happening, but nowhere in here are we told to rebel against these things. We're told these things are established by God for our good. However, again, if they fail to do the way God has ordained it to be done, they will receive a judgment for that. But we can take confidence in that. We know that no corruption will escape a holy and righteous God. So what do we do as Christian citizens, as alien citizens? What do we do? What can we do? Well, we can do a lot of things as as American citizens, right? First, we pray. We pray, and then we actively vote. We activate our rights as citizens to change the world around us through the channels of government that God's given us. That's our responsibility. We don't rebel against this God-granted authority. We submit to it instead of 
Instead of rebelling, we pray for human authorities and leaders. We trust God to do something with that, to either move them or move us, but to keep peace so that the gospel can go forth. You see, ultimately, we want to submit not for our own sake, but for the gospel's sake. As we willfully submit and we keep down corruption and we keep down rebellion, there are more opportunities for the gospel to spread openly. There are other countries who do not have that blessing that we have today. That's one of the reasons why we do submit. That's what Peter told or it's what Paul told, rather, Timothy to do. And look at 1 Timothy 2. 1 Timothy 2.1. First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men for kings or presidents and for all who are in authority. Why? Why should we pray? What's our motive? Am I praying so that I get a bigger tax cut? Yeah, that's what I want. No. That may be a benefit. I mean, you may consider that. But that's not why you pray for your leaders. That's not why you pray for your government. You pray for the government that God has put over you so that He would be glorified in it and that the world around you would benefit so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. And what he's going to go on to say after that is basically so that all men would come to the knowledge of Christ, so that people would know the gospel. That's what we do. And we need to understand that submitting, submitting to human institutions... For the Lord's sake, okay, that's, that's willfully, because if you do it for the Lord's sake, it's important. That's the, that's the key. Submitting to human institutions for the Lord's sake is very practical to your daily life and your worship. It's very practical. If you learn to submit willfully to every human institution and law, not out of a fear that you're going to get caught, but you do it for the Lord's sake, because it's good, it's for our good and for His glory, that becomes an act of worship. You become a worshiper in your obedience when you submit to everyday laws and the authority around you without complaining, then those everyday things, everyday tasks become acts of worship. Driving the speed limit, again, I keep mentioning that, don't I? Driving the speed limit is an act of worship if it's done willfully, not grudgingly. That law is to protect us. I've got another one I'll, I'll mention in a moment, too, that I really struggle with. You guys pray for me. And, and I'm really not trying to make light of these because, seriously, um, it's a temptation for me. I get in a hurry. And, and I'm not making light. I'm actually confessing a sin to you. This is a sin that I need help with because I want to honor God and I also want to protect people. Submission to an authority that God's placed over us becomes really basically an act of attributing worth to God because He has cared for us sovereignly. He has given us the government we live in, by the way, folks, as Americans, and we are very blessed in the freedoms that we have. And oftentimes, we are, we are very wasteful with these freedoms. Oftentimes, we think of freedom at the 4th of July, and that's it, you know, freedom from tyranny. No, we're freed from sin so that we can actually evangelize freely in a country without opposition at this time. We need to be doing so. And so understand, when you resist authority, basically what you're doing is you're resisting God and you're denying Him worship. Now, that should be convicting right now. You should feel this mm, in your heart when you hear that, because that's what you're doing. That's what I'm doing. When, when I resist authority, it means I'm resisting God's sovereign rule and care over my life, and I'm denying him the worship he deserves. And listen, here's some ways you, you resist. Maybe this is a way, I should refer, rephrase that. This is, here's the ways I resist, all right? When I willfully break a law because I think it's stupid, or I think that I'm above it, right? I mean, and here's one. You want to know one that, that I struggle with? I find it very offensive. Seatbelt laws are very offensive to me. It's as if the state of Oklahoma thinks that I'm an idiot, and they force me to wear a seatbelt. See, I, that's a rebellious heart. You can hear it in my, my vocabulary. And, and to be forced to do this for my security seems strange to me. Now, if it was going to help others, I can see that, but it's forced upon me. So I struggle with that. That's a resisting thinking that I know better than the governing authority, and that's sin. That's sin. I repented of that coming this morning. You, you think, yeah, I'm not joking at all. I really struggle with that one, okay? I'm sorry. Uh, rebelling against the authority God's given over us is, is when you basically resent or complain against those authorities God put over us, like the president. Now, that's kind of convicting, isn't it? Yeah. Instead of complaining and rebelling, we need to be praying and submitting. However, you're waiting for the however part. There's an exception to the role of submitting to human authorities. 
but it's probably not what you think. Basically, the exception is not, you, you, can, you can not, not submit to authority because the government is corrupt and oppressive. That's, that's, that's a, we have a divine right to rebel against it if it's corrupt and oppressive. No, you don't have a divine right. You, you don't have an excuse to uh, be an, ex- accept, or an exception from that, from that law. Even when there are evil men, as we looked at with Nebuchadnezzar, even when we have evil rulers, we need to understand they are ordained and created by God for a divine purpose. Look at Acts 4 to see that really clearly. Acts 4, 27. Now, you know, I'm going to raise the standard here. Not because we, we have no exception to break the rule of submitting to human authorities because they are oppressive and bad. No, we, we are not exempt from that. We are to be submitted to that just as Jesus was submitted to that because God ordained through the hands of wicked men the greatest good for mankind. And Jesus did not rebel. He submitted to God's will. Look what it says in Acts 4.27. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, who were, who were gathered, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. See, the leaders in Israel were corrupt. Yet God ordained that leadership. God ordained those people who were there at that time so that this could be accomplished. See, what we don't know is because we're not sovereign, we're not omniscient, we don't know what God's doing even through our corrupt government. What we know is what God's revealed is we are to do is submit to Him for His sake to those He puts over us and watch Him be glorified through our obedience and help others to see the good of His grace to us, but at the same time hold those governments accountable. When Christians stand before the king one day and they have been martyred for the preaching of the gospel, for the declaration of truth, they will receive a crown of life. And those who they lived under will receive a just judgment. And that's what we know, and we can take confidence in that. I mean, you just think about the condition that Peter and Paul lived under, the government they lived under. It was a totalitarian government ran by an evil ruler named Nero, right? Nero. And under his reign, he was, he was killing Christians by the horde. He was running them through the, 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 basically the, the field of his entertainment to be slaughtered like animals. Peter himself was one of those who died at Nero's hands, we believe. He was crucified, and the Apostle Paul was beheaded under Nero. Yet under these oppressive kind of governments, they didn't pull back our responsibilities and say, see, if you get a really bad one, this is the exception. You don't have to submit. You can rebel against Nero. No, that's not what we see in Scripture. According to Scripture, we are to submit, and we are to pray. Submit, pray that it change. Pray for the rulers. Pray for the authorities, pray for peace so that the gospel can go forth. Because if we have peace as Christians, it means we have a responsibility to preach the gospel while we have peace, openly. That'll bring change. However, you want to even get to the real exception, don't you? However, the, the only exception for, to submitting to human government is, and we all think we know this, I think, um, when the laws of human government make it illegal to obey God. That's illustrated in Acts 4 also, Acts 4.18 through 20. It says, when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. There was the command. They're being commanded to do something that they were commanded, or they're commanded not to do what they were commanded to do by Jesus himself in the Great Commission. He said to go out and proclaim my name. They're being commanded by the Sanhedrin to not do the ruling authority over them, to not do what they were commanded to do by God. So Peter answers in verse 19. Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it's right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. If you look in chapter 5, you see it again in verse 27. When they brought them up, or when they had brought them, they stood them before the council. The high priest questioned them, saying, you, we gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, Jesus' name, and yet you have filled Jerusalem 
with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us, blaming us for his crucifixion, is what they're saying. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. That is what we're called to do, is to obey God rather than men. But I want you to know something. They were righteous in their choice, but they paid a price. Okay? Civil disobedience to the law, because it's calling you to break God's law, doesn't mean you're exempt from punishment. If you stand up when the law says you cannot proclaim the gospel of Christ, and you say, I will obey God rather than men, do not complain when they lock you in prison. Do not complain, but rather rejoice. This is Jesus' gift to you. You have to realize that when we disobey any law, we're going to bear the consequences of that law, whether we're Christians or not, whether it's opposed to God or not. If the government has set this law and we break it, we are not going to be exempt from the punishment. Just accept that as a gift. You're going to probably get a fine. You're probably get imprisonment. Right now, I could be in trouble in many places, especially in the northern part of our country, to speak about or out against the sin of homosexuality and call it what God calls it, an abomination, an assault on God's sovereign creation to say, this is the way you were made, and when you go against this, you've offended me. People can be locked up for these kinds of things, and so be it. So be it. It's the truth. It's what happened to the apostles. They were locked up. They were beaten. They were scourged. They were crucified. They were killed. They were dragged to their death. That's what happens to many martyred saints throughout church history. And it's still happening today to many Christians throughout this world who are standing up and talking about Jesus openly and suffering the consequences willfully. Just remember that. If you choose in in a situation to stand firm with the truth and to obey God rather than man and have to break a law of men, you will receive a punishment, and that will be a crown of glory one day if you receive it willfully. If you, if you look, though, it's interesting. It's, it's interesting as you look at Scripture, when you see the acts of civil disobedience closely and you look at them carefully, you'll see that these acts only involve situations in which believers had to disobey God's will because of the government. There's a difference between having to and being permitted to disobey God in a government. We have laws on the, on the book right now that permits Christians to disobey God's law. Homosexual marriage. They're not telling us we have to. They're not telling me as a pastor, I have to marry a man and a man. When they do, I will have to break that command. But in the meantime, I don't have a right to rebel against that. I have a right to do something within our government to try to counter that. Vote. Speak truth in love. There's an example of, of what this would look like today where if, if you were told in our country that you could, not, uh, you could not bring Bibles into this country anymore, you could not have Bibles in this country or another country where you cannot have Bibles, they're telling someone, if you bring Bibles into this country, you are going to break our law. It is not, it is not for us to say, well... I need to submit to that. No, we are to obey a law that precedes that law. The law is go into the world and preach the gospel. So there's a precedence here that we would break because we're being told we cannot do this. Where Jesus himself is telling us we must. Therefore, we obey God, not men. However, I say that, that doesn't happen all that often here in our country yet. But you need to have your mind set to understand this. It could happen here. We need to make a distinction that if you're going to practice you know, any kind of civil disobedience against the government, you must only do so if the government is requiring you to disobey God's revealed will, God's law. Again, there's an exemption, uh, uh, I mean, example in our government that our government permits a heinous crime against babies called abortion. It's evil. It's wicked. It's murder. Slaughter of the innocent. It is not required that we do that. So I have no right to hunt down abortion doctors and shoot them. I have no right to that, to rebel against it in that manner. I have many rights as a Christian citizen to do something about it, though. First and foremost, I pray. I pray and I evangelize. I do not break God's law to do what is right when we have the privileges here to do it through His ordained means through government. 
And by His grace, we still have that freedom in our country. We can bring about change by using our constitutional rights within this country. And they were written initially for us to prevent us from the tyranny of the government. We are to use those rights. And one of those great, the greatest rights we have from our government is this. Today, it's still true. We can speak out freely against these things. We have that right. So we need to be preaching about these things. We need to be talking about what these things are. We need to speak openly against sin, and we need to vote actively. Those are two things we can do right now as American citizens in our government to prevent these things. You can pray for leaders. You can freely evangelize your neighbors and your nation. That's what you're going to do to see actual change in the country. It's not going to come through political activism. Rebellion and anarchy will never do anything but offend God and produce chaos in the world. But Christians who submit and do what they're allowed to do through the government and honor God, and when they're told that they cannot honor God because of their, their, the laws of the government, and they break that law willfully to, to submit to God, when they do those things, God will be praised. But actually, here in our country, it's rarely necessary for that to happen yet. I keep saying yet because I think it's coming. Maybe not in my lifetime, maybe in Isaiah's lifetime. But it's coming. The more our world loves darkness, the more they're going to hate the light. So we need to be prepared to be faithful right now. And you need to also remember something when you think about government and not complaining against it. Remember, government is not our enemy. Let me say it again. The government, the president is not our enemy. He is established, the government is established for our good, and he's accountable to God. Our enemy is sin. That's our enemy. Corruption in government, sin. You want to see the corruption change? Evangelize your leaders. Our enemy is sin. We have freedom now to proclaim that truth openly, so we need to be doing it. And, and so many times we want to be brave and big and think about civil disobedience. And rather than that, we need to be thinking about obedience to God's great commission. Rather than worrying about being civil disobedient, civilly dis disobedient to our government and men, we need to be obedient to God and evangelize our, evangelize our congressmen and our nation and our neighbors and our friends. That will bring change to our country. And it starts from the inside out. I believe in change. I believe we need to make change. But the kind of change that the president wanted to make would never change anyone internally. But the kind of change we can give to people through the gospel will change them eternally and internally. Go back to 1 Peter 2.15. Try to wrap this up. You can, you can imagine my difficulty preparing this, knowing what's going on right now in our government. This is a struggle. I tried to abstain from TV for a week so that I would not be overly influenced. 1 Timothy 2.15. In 1 Timothy 2.15, Peter tells us that our second responsibility, our second responsibility as alien citizens is to, number two, silence the foolishness of men powerfully. He says, For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Now, what he's saying here is he's, he's telling us by willfully submitting to human institutions we can confidently trust that God's will is being done. It's right to do that. It brings God pleasure. And by the way, when you read that in this context, this is the will of God. This is not necessarily the decreative will of God, but this is the direct will of God. This is the, 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 the will that God desires. It brings Him pleasure, in other words. This brings God pleasure when you do what's right and submit to authority that He put over you. It pleases God. And you will silence foolish men. And that's really enough of reasons that we have to, to do these very commands that he's given us here. But Peter is so kind, he goes beyond telling us uh, why we should do it, and he explains why the, the will of the Lord is important here in verse 15b. It's already, I've already alluded to it. Because if you do what's right, you'll silence these ignorance and foolish accusations of men. Basically, it'll shut the mouths of those who accuse us of either apathy or conspiracy. Because that's what we're always at as Christians. We're either apathetic, we don't care, God's, oh, God's so in control, I don't have to do anything, I don't have to vote, I don't have to do anything, it'll just come out all right in the end. Or, we're always conspiring. Man, that government, man, I think he did this, man, I think he did that, man, I think he did... I don't know those things. And to shut those, the mouths of those who accuse us of those things, he says, by doing good, and what he's talking about in context is by submitting to the authorities over you. By doing good, uh, submitting 
by this submission, by you doing it without complaining or rebellion, but rather willingly and thankfully, by you doing this, you will actually, the word is silence. Silence foolish men. Silence is the word phemo. Phemo means to muzzle the mouth of a beast. It's the same word Jesus used when he shut the mouths of demons. It's a powerful word. Peter says our, our confident submission to God's will will actually muzzle the accusations that are made against us and protect God's name. So when we submit willfully, we stand for the truth, we obey, we serve our country, we stand up for when things are wrong, we do what we can actively. Most of all, we use our freedom to preach the gospel continually. It will muzzle the accusations made against us. Christians, typically and historically, every time they come into a country, a country prospers because of our work ethic. Because we work not for men, but we work as unto the Lord. So when we serve and we submit to our government, we're doing it as unto God. What Peter wants us to know is our actions should testify that we have a different citizenship. I don't have to get tore up when this corrupt government makes bad decisions. I do, however, have the right and the responsibility to speak up, speak truth, preach the gospel, evangelize the lost, and vote. I need to do that. That's right. I need to do that. But it testifies that we belong to a different citizenship, and we're submitted to God who governs us. And we can trust that He put us here for this time, temporarily, for His will and for our good and for the glory of His name. And we can trust in those things. And that brings Him pleasure. That's what it says. This is the will of God. It pleases Him. And notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say political activism is the will of God. It doesn't say a social gospel that's devoid of the truth brings God praise. No, it says alien citizens that are armed with the truth and moved to obedience will bring God glory and bring change on the earth. That's what he's getting at. Could you imagine those early Christians reading this who have been beaten, who have been persecuted, or who have been enslaved or in, imprisoned for the gospel, reading this going, this is good, though it feels really bad. There is a divine purpose in this. Either it will bring God glory as I go through it willfully, or it will bring God glory as He delivers me from it powerfully. This brings Him glory when we do these things, knowing that He is our King. One King, two kingdoms. Trusting in His rulership protects us from being corrupted by our own government. Let me ask you a couple of questions to think about. And these are, these are important questions right now. Do you want to see change in the welfare system in our country? Do you want to see our welfare system change? I think we would all say yes. Here's how you start. You start by caring for people personally. You start feeding them and clothing them and evangelizing them. You lead them to the bread of life as you feed them from the bread of your table. You don't trust a government to do that. The government has usurped the place of the church in many circles. We're not going to help people spiritually through government programs. We're going to help people spiritually through gospel-motivated action driven by the gospel of Christ and not neglecting to preach the gospel of Christ. Social activism and social gospels will never bring salvation to sinners and hope for the lost and hurting. I can have nothing and be at peace and have joy and rich toward God if I have Jesus. And that'll actually change the welfare system in our country when you start declaring that to people and backing it up with actions. Do you want to see the abortion laws change? Yes. Then share the gospel. Share the gospel that declares that the God who can bring life from the dead has created life in the womb. When you, create, when you preach that and you declare that, your neighbors will hear that and their eyes will be open to see that this life that they have been granted by God is precious and so is the one that those women carry in their womb. And they'll vote differently. See, gospel-driven actions, gospel-driven actions and gospel-employed actions, in other words, not only doing these social deeds, but actually declaring the gospel is the reason why you do these deeds and explaining the gospel while you do these deeds, that is what brings glory to God and silences the foolish accusations of men. It brings Him glory, not only 
in the kingdom we live in, but in the kingdom to come. Because we're saying we're temporary citizens. We're here for a time so that we may proclaim the excellence of him who called us out of darkness into light. I don't have to be caught up in this world system and worried. I can submit willfully for God's glory, trusting the outcome to be in his hands and to see him magnified through those deeds and acts that we do for his sake as we obey those God puts over us. If you would, let's pray. Father God, we come to you today thanking you that you have given us in this country the freedoms that we don't really deserve. Though I know that many think we do deserve these things, but God, in reality, we deserve nothing but your wrath because we were enslaved to our sin and rebellion against your rulership. But you have sovereignly transformed our souls and you have sovereignly placed us in this country. Lord, I pray that you don't let us waste it. I pray that we'd be moved to submit, not to men, but to you ultimately, so that we would have more of a platform to preach the gospel actively. And Lord, I pray that you would remove the attitude that, of apathy itself from our hearts today and complaining and rebellion, but rather let us have confidence because we know that you're powerfully working, even through the hands of human agencies, to allow us an opportunity to proclaim your excellent name freely at this time. And Father, I also want to pray at this time for those in other countries who cannot even do what we are doing right now. Lord, yet I know that they are confident that you are with them through their suffering. And they're taking confidence in these same scriptures that you have called them to submit and also to stand when they have to say, I would rather obey you than man. And they can stand willfully and they can stand knowing that they will receive a reward and glory, even for the harsh treatment they may receive from those who abuse your authority here on earth. Father, I pray that you would cause us to repent of our own rebellion and to be moved to compassion to pray for those who are suffering in far greater ways than we are for your sake. Help us to be moved and thankful for your grace and your freedom that you've granted us today in Christ. In his name I pray. Grab your black binders, please, and turn to page 16 in Christ alone, and please stand. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace, what fears are steeled when striving cease. My comforter, my all and all. Here in the love of Christ I stand. In Christ alone who took on flesh, fullness of God in helpless babe, this gift of love and righteousness, scorned by the ones he came to save. Till on the cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ I live. There in the ground, body lay, light of the world by darkness slain, then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he rose again, and as he stands in victory, 
Sin's curse has lost its grip on me, for I am his and he is mine, bought by the precious blood of Christ. No guilt in life, no fear in death, this is the power of Christ in me. Life's first cry till final breath. Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ I stand. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ I stand. 